Hello, and welcome to the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio. From creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets, here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. This is episode 219. I'm Vincent Diamante, and hopefully there's no one else out there currently spoofing my identity right now. But we, we got a bunch of other guys here besides me, unless you guys want to spoof my identity. Uh, we could, No, we've got Mike and Alex over here. Uh, Alex, how are you doing over there? Uh, I'm not, not, not doing too badly, thanks. It's, uh, it's Friday night here, which means I'm at the end of my week and feeling somewhat fatigued, but... Uh, a little bit of energy left to enjoy a, some fine conversation about game audio with you two esteemed gentlemen. So uh, yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, how about you? Yeah. How are you, Vince? I, I'm doing okay. Um, well, let's see. Something happened in the last hour that just really got to me. But before that, uh, Mike, how are things going over there on the other side of LA from me? Well, the debate goes on as to which flavor of bubbly sparkling water is the best. I recognize that the difference between these flavors is probably just the color of the can. So in those terms, I'm going to say that my current opinion is the can that has the dark purple kind of approximating red is my current favorite. Uh, I'll keep you updated as further developments uh, unfurl. But it's like a... It's kind of like a, we're comparing EQ plugins there just for a moment. <laughs> they yeah, that's, that's next episode. A little but, yeah. red, okay, a little yeah. blue. <laughs> that's, right. that's a little bit of foreshadowing there. Right. There's a, there, there's definitely a psychosomatic um, factor. All I can tell you is that Bubbly is better than most of the other brands, which mostly taste like processed aluminum with a little bit of moisture. So I feel like I'm ahead of the game as far as that uh, line of beverage is concerned. Vince, your your introduction was strangely specific. It sounds like you were alluding to something. Perhaps you'd care to elaborate. Yes, I'm going to get right into that. Uh, basically, even though I have a really good collection of of software that I can use for various things, that doesn't mean that I'm not on the hunt for good deals as they pop up. Just earlier today, I looked through my Facebook feed and Facebook throws out some ads at me. Often it's, you know, stuff from Arturia or Isotope or, uh, you know, some of these storefronts that actually sell licenses for these things. Well, I saw an ad earlier for Plugin Boutique, and it looked a little bit different from the last sale that they had. I know they just recently did this anniversary sale, um, and they had a bunch of stuff on there. You know, Isotope, SSL, you know, just a bunch of collections of stuff on sale. And I thought, oh, are they doing a new sale now that we're past the President's Day sort of window? So I clicked on it and I thought, okay, cool, time to log in. And I tried logging in and I noticed that it wasn't taking. And I thought, this is weird. Am I doing the right address, the right password? And I went to my email to confirm which email address I'd actually signed up for a Plugin Boutique account with. Because I know I've used their site before, it's great. I look through my email and I see, oh wait, this is redirecting me to a different site. This is directing me, these emails that I have are directing me to PluginBoutique.com and not to PluginBoutique.shop, which is where this Facebook ad took me. 
Ah, uh, so I realized I had been typing in my address and password into this site, which is definitely not a legit site the more that I looked at it. It used the exact same plugin boutique logo, but the website itself was a little bit different um, and actually a lot different if you look at things like the pricing, which I didn't notice unless I scrolled down further, uh, where it was talking about things like Isotope RX Advanced for 10 bucks instead of the usual oh. hundreds of bucks. I mean, Plugin Boutique does do great discounts, but there are some things that are generally not discounted that much. For example, Isotope RX or Fab Filter. I think it was saying, hey, you can get the whole, whole stock of Fab Filter stuff for, I, I think it was something ridiculous, like three bucks. And, ah. Uh, if I had looked a little bit more closely, a little bit earlier, uh, I wouldn't have put in my password. So uh, the last hour or so has been me going around and changing passwords really quickly. Do you um uh do you use a password manager of any sort? Uh, no, I don't. Uh. I'm, a I'm a little bit scared of those. I guess I I, I know I shouldn't be because many people I know uh, actually do that and. They trust them, so maybe I should try that out. But uh, no, I'm kind of old school. I just have a couple of different passwords. I do write notes to myself in a separate notebook about what that password is, in order to remind myself. Yeah, it might be. But, um, it might yeah. be a worthwhile uh, worthwhile transition to make. I use uh, one password, and I mean most of the uh, the big name password management uh, software. Uh, they mostly have a similar set of functionality, but one thing that actually could prevent something like this happening in the future is that when you set up these password management um, programs, they have, you know, you'll input your username and you'll input a password and you'll input a URL where when you access, if you have the, a plug, for example, with one password, if you have one password set up with Firefox or whatever your browser is, then when you go to the URL that is connected with the entry inside the, your password database, for that account, then you'll actually um, get a little pop-up saying, do you want to enter your password here, right? So mm. if it is a different a different URL, then you won't get any pop-up. So it won't actually ask you to enter right. your password. So it won't, you, you would never f sort of find yourself in that situation. Um, but all of that said, that's a really horrible thing to happen. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty uh, alarming, but there's also a confusing element to if you assume that the scammers mocked up the plugin boutique website and they put ads on Facebook and they targeted people. I, I've never used Facebook's advertising tools, but I assume you can target people who have interest in XYZ. So they were able to approximate the same audience that real plugin boutique uses. Um, I assume, like of all businesses to scam, why a discount plugin vendor? Like, wouldn't you want to scam a business where people are spending more money rather than less? Um, it, it seems so such an idiosyncratic choice, and I'm I'm kind of curious why they picked that one. Yeah, well, I don't think that they're caring about the you know the three dollars or ten dollars that people are ostensibly trying to buy these plugins for. I think it's more just the usernames and passwords because once you get that connection, 
then that's something that they can plug in to other sites on the web. You know, thankfully, I typed in my email address and I typed in a password that was not connected to the important stuff like my, you know, bank accounts, for example, or, you know, things like that. Instead, I have a couple different passwords that I use if it's going to be for a storefront or some promotional type website that I don't really interact with for important things. Um, I have a certain set of passwords that I use. So, but they are ostensibly shared though. Um, mm. So I went on there and I thought, okay, great. Now this password, this specific password is out in the wild. And I know I use it on these websites, for example, retailers. So I go over to retailers where I have an account and I change those passwords. Great. Um, thankfully, people can't really do too much damage with things like that. But still, if you do that enough, you can gather other things. For example, they could have access to my real address or real phone numbers just by having that account. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't think I've uh, saved credit card information with my retailers. I generally don't do that. But you know, theoretically, someone could uh, go to, a, you know, a shop like Best Buy or something, and they're able to log in, you know, they might not mess with the account, but hey, there's credit card information that's actually saved with this. And maybe it's a limited uh, form of that credit card information, but it might be enough to further trawl the web and recover more of that information. And uh, someone could get your credit card that way. Yeah, so it's a horrible feeling, though, not not really knowing the extent of, you know, damage that has been done in a situation like this. Um, but I would, yeah, definitely uh, consider getting into one of the uh, the many password management uh, systems out there because uh, a lot of them can, they make the process of changing passwords. And obviously, you're keeping a record of all of this. So you know that if you're using the same password on multiple sites, um, then having a record of it will allow you to easily identify, okay, these are the ones that I was using that password on, so these are the ones that I need to change. But anyway, now all of that aside, yeah, it's a horrible thing to happen to you, Vince. Uh, it's, yeah, deep it's all right. That. Yeah, thank you. I'll just have to make sure to be a little bit more careful next time I look at some of these discount sites. I mean, that really is a common thing that I see, though, uh, because... People are able to purchase plugins directly from places like Isotope or uh, or FabFilter or Zynaptic. <laughs> that just came to mind because, oh, yeah, that's right. I last used Plugin Boutique in order to purchase certain Zynaptic plugins on sale. They had one that was pretty cool called Zynaptic Intensity, which is a really interesting loudness plugin, which does loudness in a weird way. It's it's definitely different from other plugins that I have, you know, your more typical uh, loudness mastering stuff that's out there. And I thought it was worth it, uh, certainly for the sale price that Plugin Boutique was offering at the time. It was very cool. But uh, I keep on seeing that question on the web. Hey, is Plugin Boutique a legit site? How are they actually able to to sell like this? And I, I had that same question too many, many years ago. Is Plugin Boutique legit? Yeah, it is legit. But unfortunately, there's also, <laughs> wow, pluginboutique.shop? No, not legit. <laughs> so I got to be very careful about what's showing up in my Earl bar there. Mm. Well, it sounds like this was a 
unpleasant cap to the week for you. But on the other hand, I feel like this week has been, on the whole, uh, a very positive and exciting one for uh, both you and Alex, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, it's been pretty good. Got to see some stuff actually come out uh, just towards the end of last week. That soundtrack, the Space Folk City soundtrack, volume one. So I was super happy to see that online at the various places. Uh, I first saw it on YouTube, actually. Cool. Very cool to see that. I, it's not quite the same as uh, the game release because uh, that hit Oculus uh, a couple of months ago towards the end of last year. But uh, you know, seeing the music now available in this form uh, really gave me a nice positive a burst of energy, and I was really excited to share that information to everyone that I knew. We're talking, of course, about the soundtrack to Space Folk City, which is the uh, game that my company, Moon Mode, we released, as Vince just mentioned just now, um, uh, at the end of last year. And uh, we finally managed to get the soundtrack out. Uh, it was um, a little bit of process, because I wanted to get the tracks mastered externally uh, by somebody other than myself for this release. Uh, and then sort of trying to keep up with all of the other marketing stuff that was going on surrounding the release and then the post-release, actually getting the time to sit down and uh, uh, get all those tracks sorted out and ready. And uh, actually the the order of the songs, I think we went through, actually that was quite an involved process as well. I think we went through two or three iterations of trying to figure out what order the songs should go in um, because... The album is not dead, not if not if we have anything to do with it. Right, Vince? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there's more music. I was actually just thinking about that. Like, which ones of these tracks are my personal favorites? Mm. You know, Volume 1 definitely has some strong entries, but I'm really looking forward to Volume 2 because there's some very cool ones there. For ex Like, I keep on mentioning, for example, you with the imperatives going, Scrap collect you know and that's <laughs> not on volume one though it is actually that is oh, on volume one. it is on volume one. Oh, oh wait a minute yeah. that's right wait yeah. a minute am i confusing it hold on yeah. hold yeah. on i confused myself there oh yeah, no uh... no city defender is on oh, okay. oh yeah there we go sorry i yes you use your you record yourself on a couple of different tracks on this whole soundtrack but city defender that is a really cool one that's not going to be available until Volume 2 comes out. So I'm really excited for people to check that one out. On that topic, um, since we live in an era where album releases can be arbitrarily long, uh, what is behind the decision to release multiple volumes of the soundtrack as opposed to one gargantuan volume with everything that's going to be on Volume 1 and 2 together? Wasn't there wasn't really any specific sort of strategic or artistic mo uh, intention behind it? I think it just we have a lot of tracks of music in this game. Uh, in total, there are twenty two songs, and um, it just sort of felt like a natural thing to have them in two volumes, not for a marketing reason or anything like that. This is rather than having you know one album with uh, essentially twenty two. I guess it would be twenty six songs on it because we've got some of. Vince's excellent uh, radio stingers, radio bumpers in there as well, uh, rather than having such a massive long album like that. Um, we just figured that it would be nice to have them split up into two volumes so that you could, you know, you'd have a, a category 
to group them together in, you know, that song on volume two or that song on volume one or which is which is your favorite volume, uh, et cetera, mm. et cetera. So there wasn't really any specific um, uh, or interesting motivation behind that. I'm actually wondering, were you thinking at all about uh, CD length at all? Because with the number of songs, uh, when I eyeballed it, I immediately thought, yeah, that won't fit on a CD. Uh, but but did you have a similar thought there? <laughs> Not really with the specific length of a CD in mind, but because uh, if you if you go to uh, check out the soundtrack and the, the place to do that is on our uh, Moon Mode Games link tree, which is linktr.ee slash moonmodegames, you'll see the soundtrack there. The actual album cover is trying to basically imitate the the sort of classic albums of the time of the 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 early 80s and the late 70s which was the kind of genre uh, time point that we were using as a as an inspiration for the music which we'll talk about a little bit later just the idea of an album being this group of songs about this long that was definitely something that was in my mind Having just said that there was no artistic motivation by splitting it up into albums, I guess I just contradicted myself, didn't I? <laughs> your thoughts so, are your thoughts on the topic are evolving during the course of this discussion. That's right. That's right. Yes, I, I'm working it out as I'm speaking. I guess that's the story of my life. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So it, it wasn't specifically with the idea of it being the length of a CD, but having these sort of discrete chunks of songs that could be broken up into two and feel kind of like an album. That was one thing that I, uh, I think that we definitely wanted. I will say, having very recently listened to this, um, the amounts of music was accessible and made for a good single listening session. And sometimes when you get scores that are super inclusive, uh, there's a fatigue that can set in, I think. Um, well, first of all, if you see a list of like 50 tracks, it can be daunting. And I find psychologically, I'm less inclined to listen to that because it's it's more satisfying to just, you know, digest everything at once. Uh, so there, there may be, I may be on board with the idea of a kind of a psychological artistic argument for that. Yeah, that's right. I, th I agree. I think, you know, when you come to uh, soundtracks, I guess we should start off with a little bit of context here, because there's probably quite a few people who don't know about the game or, or, you know, what this music is even for or, or even why Vince and I are here talking about it. So just as a little bit of uh, background, my company Moon Mode, we started a game called Space Folk City. We started development about, actually about two years ago now, I think it would be. Um, and it is a VR game. And basically, uh, to sum up the mechanics very, very simply, this is a city building game, but a very casual light city building game uh, and the analogy that i use in most places when we're talking about it is that it's a little bit like what mario kart is to racing games this is what we intended space folk city to be to city building games so it is a very light casual simple encapsulation of some basic things that make uh, city building games fun the key difference with space folk city is that being a vr game we are trying to encourage the player to be um, building smaller cities instead of big sprawling flat cities, smaller and also in three dimensions as in vertical cities that have a front and a back and a top and a bottom rather than you know just a big flat surface. Uh, and the reason for that is because um, Spacefolk City needs to run on an Oculus Quest 1 
at the time that we were releasing, uh, this was sort of in the transition point between the Quest 1 and the Quest 2. Because of that, we, we can't really manage in the game on a Quest 1 a massive, massive city because it just causes the frame rate to slow down a lot with the, the relatively underpowered Android processor. So anyway, the being a city building game, um, the decision came down to uh, what kind of music spec should we do for this? And um, at Moon Mode, we generally like to come up with our music concepts at the same time as we're doing the visual concept for the game. And uh, a certain album was uh, the obvious choice for myself and Therese, our, our main artist at Moon Mode, as we were developing it. And uh, that was Solid State Survivor by the Yellow Magic Orchestra from Japan. And... Uh, I knew that I needed a collaborator to help me fill up the tracks of a radio station. We decided to, that it should be a radio station that you listen to as you play this. Um, and yeah, Vince was the obvious choice with his uh, very extensive knowledge of, um, you know, early Japanese synth pop music and Japanese fusion music, and also the, the relevance of those genres to the development of modern game music. Um, that's an area that I know I knew that Vince was very, very familiar with. And actually, my decision to partner with Vince on the soundtrack was immediately affirmed when we had our very first briefing call about it. And I said, Vince, you don't happen to know this album called Solid State Survivor by the Yellow Magic Orchestra, do you? And he, he literally said, oh, sure I do. I've just got it over here. Hold on, let me just grab it. <laughs> he actually had it just behind his computer for some reason. You know, I... I, I like it too, but I don't like it as much to, to keep a copy of it at close hand. But, you know, that is that re immediately affirmed that, yes, yes, Vince is the right choice for this project. So that's uh, kind of the backstory and the context of how this all came about. When I was listening, I, I did hear some echoes of classic 80s. I don't think it was called electronica back then. But I think my own musical biases spoke up and I thought I was hearing a little bit of Thomas Dolby influence and... Thompson Twins, uh, bands that were primarily vocal, but that had a recognizable electronic cast to all their, their tunes. But I suspect what I was hearing was perhaps the, the common vocabulary of electronic pop at that time. You know, I, we had Solid State Survivor as this anchor point, but we definitely didn't stick to that as a model for every song that we wrote in the album. If anything, it was a really good sort of starting point for all of our thoughts as we developed the soundtrack. But uh, we didn't really stick to, hey, it's got to sound like Solid State Survivor for any of the tracks. No, um, it's actually, yeah. it's, also, it's also extremely ambitious because Solid State Survivor is a utterly brilliant I mean, piece it's of seminal. work. It's seminal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's like very, you know, impossible to to really capture uh, you can sort of capture a similar mood and that's exactly the brief that uh, i'd given vince and the brief that i had for myself is that we want to capture the same kind of mood um and the same humor that uh, the yellow magic orchestra has hit a peak with that solid state survivor album uh, but to ca to get the same you know timbres and the same aesthetics and the same sound no just that's impossible <laughs> yeah too difficult I think that's okay, considering it is supposed to be uh, not the the catalog of a single band, but a whole radio station worth of music for your for your playing of Space Folk City. I think 
yeah, it turned out cool. That diversity. In the context of the game, is the radio station, are the selections from the radio station random or are they situational where depending on what you're doing in the game, you might be more likely to hear certain tracks or you will definitely hear different tracks? Oh, it's uh, it's random. It's it's disconnected from your play experience, uh, except for the fact that you can, in fact, turn off the radio station if you want. But yeah, it is a random play. The DJ does not know exactly what you're doing while you're playing. Yeah, that's right. The the tricky thing, you know, when we were specking out the the music spec for the game, um, the the tricky thing with city building. That we that we hit on immediately as a, as a challenge for anything more complicated or anything more in depth in terms of a musical implementation. The tricky thing with a city building game is that you tend to not have so much of this kind of emotional stepping points. You know, there, there are, it's not like say an open world game or somewhere as an example where if you you're wandering around and you you know you go into this area and then suddenly. You know, it feels very threatening here, and then over here it feels very peaceful, and over here now suddenly there's combat and you feel very tense. It, there's less of this emotional transition. In a city building game, the emotional aspect of it is is much more linear. You'll have moments where, you know, you've you've completed this and that's a happy thing, or you've you know, you've built that and that's a happy thing. So you get these small little spikes of happiness, I suppose. But beyond that, it doesn't really have this kind of transition points of emotion. And so that's why early on when I was thinking about, well, what kind of musical implementation do we, what are the options here? Having some kind of adaptive score or having some kind of music that changes depending on what you're doing didn't really seem like the logical choice here considering the relatively static kind of emotional flow that the player would be going through. That, uh, that makes sense to me. And in a way, if the, if the emotional experience is consistent and it's rooted more in the universe and the visuals and the experience, um, a broad sweeping kind of musical treatment that plays the general vibe of the game with lots of variety and, and different interpretations of that seems very apt. I think of um, you know, the classic game Outrun, uh, the, the kind of 80s, 90s, maybe early 90s arcade console game, which also used a mid -80s. premise. What's that? It, that was very much a mid '80s arcade game. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I want to say it, it was '87. Hmm, that sounds about right. It used the premise of a diegetic radio station, where yeah. you could actually pick the music you were listening to, and the premise was you were tuning into different stations on your car as you were driving. So the the that musical approach uh, has a long history, and I think for certain types of games, it, it does make a lot of sense. Hmm. Yeah, the, the big challenge I think that um, I was constantly aware of and eventually gave up on, <laughs> the, the truth comes out, I've never admitted that to Vince actually, <laughs> how do you do a soundtrack for a game that is basically semi-intellectual as a, as a city building game? You know, you, you are thinking about placement and thinking about, you know, how to structure and organize your city. How to do that in a way that is non-intrusive However, still memorable and enjoyable, but not repetitive and not irritating. So, you know, the idea of incorporating voice, the idea of incorporating strong melody, these are things that I was originally thinking that maybe it might be better to avoid that kind of thing, you know, avoid 
strong melody or to avoid voice just because there's the there's the risk that that could be too distracting or it could be you know especially I knew that we had Vince and I had around about a year uh, and I was also the the producer for the game and I was also doing a whole bunch of other stuff in the project because Moon Mode is a very very small company so we all have to wear multiple hats so I knew that with Vince and myself working I guess more or less half time across the span of a year actually I guess one third time in my case because I was uh, doing a whole bunch of other stuff but I knew that we wouldn't have a massive amount of of um, of music that we would be able to produce over that time. So then the question became, how do we do this in a way that, yeah, it basically doesn't become irritating or repetitive for a player? And then I gave up and I thought, oh, whatever, <laughs> let's just go for it. Let's just, let's just have fun. <laughs> You know, just just let's put in all the melody. Let's put let's I'll put some voice recordings on some parts. And I told Vince as well that you know I was uh, I was encouraging you, Vince, to just like just go ham with the incredible you know late seventies jazz fusion keyboard solos, which you did on a number of the tracks to uh, to epic result. Um, after a while, I think it's just thought. Well, I think what's more important here, rather than trying to make unobtrusive tracks that just sort of play along in the background. What's more important is that we have a, a strong soundtrack that is totally aesthetically consistent with the game. That's probably more important than making sure that it doesn't become repetitive or is not irritating. Within reason, of course. Um, but after I think the first track, that's when I realized, okay, this is going to be really hard for me to come up with, you know, 11 tracks of music that uh, are, you know, low key and that sort of sit in the background. So I'll just have fun instead. I have this unrigorous theory, but I've tried to apply this in making decisions along these lines uh, in the past. And that is the, the level of, we'll call it musical interestingness of underscore uh, has some relationship to the kind of concentration the player is engaging in. And in particular, if you've got a game with a lot of reading of text, like a strategy game, or something where your your verbal mental centers are being engaged, uh, I think that's when it's more important that the music be ambient. Uh, so mm. if you're doing something, or not necessarily just text, but if there's a lot of spoken information, you know, if you're playing like Dragon Age or something, there's a lot of conversation. But the more that the game is spatial, visual, kinesthetic, um, Tetris-like, to put it in the to describe the ultimate representation of that kind of game. Uh, I think the more useful it is to have something you can hook your attention span into. So mm. from what I've seen in this game, it's, it's. I mean, there's some strategy element clearly, and you can correct me if I'm being completely off in my guess, but it looks like it is primarily a kind of a visual strategic puzzle solving where you're, you're interrelating different elements and e even things like where you put the power generator is kind of a visual problem because you, you want to put the power source near a, a cosmic cloud of some kind. And that's, uh, there's not a lot of text, right? And, and dialogue. Is, is that a correct assessment? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, there are some, uh, there is a spatial puzzling aspect to it, but that's not the main focus. Really, the main focus is, I guess, the absurdity of the aesthetics, really. You know, that, that <laughs> really is the, the, the main focus that we wanted to, you know, um, wanted players to remember. The, the the intellectual aspect, it, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily difficult. Like it's not like a, a 
puzzle where you have to basically think your way through it. Um, uh, but there is a light aspect of that kind of intellectual challenge to it. Uh, so, yeah, luckily in the end, um, both Vince's tracks and my tracks, they, they didn't really hold anything back in terms of trying to be unobtrusive or, or trying to just sort of sit in the background and quietly be there. Both Vince's tracks and my tracks tend to command a fair bit of attention. Uh, I think we were very fortunate to hit just the right balance of that, though, because with the game itself, not specifically having any kind of really strong intellectual aspect that requires your attention, such as reading or really difficult spatial puzzles that you have to think a lot about, um, and being mostly focused on the VR aspect, aspect and the, 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 the visual aesthetics and the absurdity of it all. Yeah, I would say, wouldn't you say, Vince, I think we managed to hit kind of a sweet spot there with the the memorability of the music in terms of melodies and vocal parts and just absurdity together with the, the visual aspect of the game so that it sort of balanced out quite well, I think. Wouldn't you say, Vince? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that really is a, you know, just the sort of fun, playful nature of it above all else. I think I think it was all altogether successful. One thing that um, did come up a few times with uh, Therese was that we didn't want the the soundtrack to be dark. So there are, there are one or two songs that have you know slightly darker kind of aesthetics to them, but by and large, every song is very colourful and very um, uh, bright and you know uh, basically happy. <laughs> um, and I think that was something that was very important. I remember when I was toying around with ideas for different tracks, there were a few situations where I would come up with something and think, ah, oh, that's kind of a little dark. You know, it shouldn't be so, you know, bleak and dark or, or uh, intentionally, you know, quote, cool, unquote. <laughs> you know, uh, it it needs to be sort of eccentric and ridiculous, but very self-aware of itself, if you know what I mean. Right. When you say that, I immediately think, oh, man, I think I, uh, I'm i what you're talking about when you're talking about those dark songs. Because there are a couple of dark tracks. Um, like Galaxy Springs is like very – it's very subdued. You know, it's yeah, like it that, starts off with that – yeah. But, but that's actually – now that I think about it, I think that's w- the one track where I thought I am going to try to hit a particular – tonal point in Solid State Survivor. I was specifically thinking of that track Castalia mm. when when doing Galaxy Springs. And that and Castalia also has a similar thing going on in terms of like the very minimal sort of uh melodic presentation, very stark presentation of the material. Um but we approach it in a couple different ways. Like there's a that very specific uh, electronic drums, and I actually use some live drums for for Galaxy Springs, and you know, so there are a couple of things like that. But yeah, I actually had some trouble with that. I knew that I didn't need to be serious or brooding. And actually, when you hired me out, I was actually kind of scared about that. That I've have been spending a few years by that point working on very serious music in terms of 
the tone and the themes and the structures and the um, the material that it's connected to the stories. It's like, oh, this is serious music. And now you're hiring me to do ostensibly fun music, you know, satirical music, mm. uh, like, you know, the whole thing with not just Solid State Survivor, but YMO was sort of poking fun at themselves and poking fun at the image of electronic music or the image of Japanese culture in the rest of the world. It's like, oh man, that's really cool. That's really fun. Can I actually do that? And that was definitely something that I was thinking a lot about. Can I be fun? I I knew I had to be fun, but am I ready for this at this particular (laughs) time with all the projects that I had just been working on at that particular point? Actually, um, uh, would you be able to pull up a little bit of Galaxy Springs? Could we, could we oh. hear a little bit? Because that, that's a very interesting track, actually. Okay, let's see here. Galaxy Springs, here we go. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go I was going to say, um, so yeah, that's an interesting track. Uh, most of the stuff that, that for both of us, I think we did a lot of our stuff either in the box with our synths. Um, I mean, I had some hardware synths that I used, but actually this is one of the few tracks where I um, hired out a drummer for this because uh, mm. I, I felt that that would actually be needed for that. Um, Actually, it might be nice yeah. to contrast uh, to contrast Galaxy Springs together with uh, one of the more, you know, I guess I was to say typical Space Folk City tracks, which is probably it's turned out to be quite a popular song with the players, and that is "Happy in the City." Would you oh, mind yeah. uh, just maybe putting on a little bit of that, maybe from somewhere in the middle? All right, let's see here. That's kind of an example of the, um, wow, our, our songs are really different, aren't they? <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> While listening to the, uh, the album, I actually tried to guess which of you wrote each tune without looking. And, oh, really? Uh, I found that I was right about 75% of the time. Uh, oh, okay. That I, I anticipated that you know, Alex, your tracks would be a little more whimsical and frolicsome, and Vince's would be a little more contemplative. Right. And that... That that bore out most of the time, uh, but that having been said, I was going to compliment you on both blending your respective sounds into something that, to me, as a 
unbiased, you know, outside observer felt very unified. They all felt like they were part of the same universe and not not distinct enough to feel like they were from different games. I'm not sure how we did that, but I am very proud of the fact that um, they seem to come together very nicely. Uh, I actually would be really curious to know which of the tracks that you got wrong when you were guessing, uh, <laughs> Mike, Me because too. Vince, Vince, and my approaches are you know not only technically but artistically just very very different. However, as you said, I'm very proud of the fact that when you listen to the album from start to the end, this volume one and volume two is the same as well. Um, they're they're clearly written by two different people or, or different people, but they do. There is a sort of a thread of that weird, campy, eccentric, subtle humor, I suppose, uh, in the in the way that the music flows. And um, yeah, I don't really know. One thing I would have to say is that we've been really, really fortunate that uh, players have enjoyed the soundtrack very, very much. And it's one of the things that we get commented on very frequently, actually, when the game in, in reviews and... Um, player comments is also on our discord server as well people comment that they really like the soundtrack and that it doesn't really get boring and it doesn't get tiring and a lot of people have their favorite tracks and i think that's that's wonderful like i love the idea that you know there would be a favorite song that that you would that you would enjoy hearing as you play and as you build um build your city and it, it's just nice you know it feels like uh, um uh the, the music isn't necessarily just a you know something to be listening to in the background, but actually kind of up the front of the stage together with the other things like gameplay and the art style and the interactions, the music is right up the front there as well as a specific thing that people latch onto. So uh, yeah, good job us. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the challenges of scoring a VR game is that the full immersion of the game kind of conflicts with the idea of using your music tools. You know, if you're if you're wearing the helmet and you're floating around in space, it's hard to actually be engaged in composition. Uh, how often did you did you refer to the full VR experience? Did you really immerse yourself in the game during the music creation process? Well, for mm. yeah, for me because I was also the producer on the project, uh basically every day <laughs> because obviously I need to test the game a lot. Uh, and, you know, we were figuring out the game mechanics as we were going along, and that obviously involves a lot of gameplay uh, and testing. And so, yeah, for me, it was sort of a constant, constant uh, passive exposure to the game. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write a new piece of music now, so I'm just going to have a play to get some inspiration. It was less like that and more just, you know, basically one half of my day would be playing the game and testing and then the other half would be writing music. So it wasn't a conscious decision to, re to reference the experience of the game by frequently, you know, um, uh, playing the, the game specifically while I was writing the music, but I was kind of exposed to it in that way, I guess. Yeah, for me, uh, I was definitely referring to the game itself a, a decent amount early on. Um, but... Honestly, by the end of it, I wasn't really thinking that much about it. I think partially because, uh, quite honestly, I haven't really gotten my VR legs under me or, or my VR eyes. It was really tough for me still. Mm. Um, I tried a couple of different things like getting some separate glasses uh, that, are, that sit really close to my face in order to play the game or getting lens inserts mm. that I could just pop onto them. 
you, you just pop it inside the headset so it's more or less permanently installed. But still not quite perfect for me, or rather, I, I still have a tough time with VR. Yeah. But earlier on, just getting used to the idea of what the game would be and what a play session would be like was definitely useful. But once that was more or less internalized, by the end of it, I was, all right, let's, let's try something different. And um, my concern at that point was really, I need to think of something different. I need to come at this song from a different angle than all the previous eight, nine songs and uh, and still make something cool. Yeah, that's the um, that's the terrible thing about developing VR. Playing a VR game once it's finished is is you know much less of a problem. But when you're developing, obviously you're dealing with unoptimized code, and therefore you may get you know uh, really tough situations with low frame rate, which is yes, if you're not used to it, can be very very debilitating. Uh, stylistically, there's something you alluded to earlier, which was the inclusion of voice phrases. Uh, not to the extent that they felt like lyrics per se, but like they were often spoken or sung refrains uh, that the songs referred to. And, and I noticed that these occurred in cues written by both of you. So was this a coordinated stylistic decision? Was it something that there was precedent in the album that you mentioned that was the role model for the score? Or is it something you just both arrived at independently? I think we just both kind of did it, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, wait a minute. Who did it first? Like, um, like Happy in the City was an earlier track. Um, was that the first one? I think it might have been, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. I think it was the um, kind of a combination of all those things, that the, all those reasons that you, um, you asked there, Mike. Kind of a combination of all of them. I had an idea that I wanted to have some of the lyrics subtly hint the player at how to play the game. And so most, actually all of the lyrics... For the ones that have my voice on them, uh, this volume one I don't think has. I think it has maybe only two songs of mine that actually I have lyrics. Volume two has um, uh, also two or three songs with with words in them that are much more. You you'll you'll hear them and you you say okay that's basically explaining to the player how to play the game uh, through a sort of more of a, a cryptic interpretation of the of the the game mechanics, um, but. The voice, adding the voice in just made a lot of sense. It not only provided uh, a much broader scope in terms of diversity and the kinds of feelings that we could create and the sort of options that you have um, for the, each one of these songs, but also uh, it's a, it was a very, very easy and quick shortcut to that kind of absurdity that the Yellow Magic Orchestra captured so well with Solid State Survivor. A lot of their, their songs mm -hmm. there as well have these really kind of nonsensical, kind of silly lyrics. And it's just far easier to capture that when you can do the same thing with voice. So, uh, yeah, for, for me, that was it, it sort of made sense that, yeah, okay, I should also have some words in here. What am I going to sing about? Or what am I going to speak about? I guess the game mechanics, because, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so... In a way, it reminded me a little bit of Esquivel, even though the styles were dramatically different, uh, just because there would be these refrain lyrics uh, that would be very playful and uh, sometimes felt literal and sometimes felt more um, abstract, but treating them as um, not continual lyrics, but as these flourishes, I think, that that kind of reminded me a little bit of that Esquivel. 
Yeah, um, there's a mm-hmm. there's a few tracks on the um, on the second volume that I think you're going to be uh, you're going to be quite happy with, Mike, <laughs> in, in terms of the lyrical content. Do they do they compliment me personally? Because that would be really cool. <laughs> no, okay, well, guy can dream. I, it makes me wonder <laughs> if anyone has ever taken this a step further and literally had the game tutorial instructions all be sung, like on a, on a granularity where after you complete one tutorial. The music would then sing some kind of acknowledgement of that, like a very specific response to what you were doing. I'm curious that's ever been done in game music. I, I don't actually the the idea of voice in in game music. How how often do we have that? I, I I'm sort of tempted to say that it's it's somewhat rare to have have voice singing lyrics in game music while you're playing the game. Well, I think diegetically, you're more likely, when the music is diegetic, you're more likely to encounter it. Like if you're playing GTA and there's well-recognized pop tunes playing in your car radio. Um, but in terms of the music being a little more like score, you know, abstract narrative music, I don't think it's common. I'm, I'm sure there are examples, yeah. like they're kind of tickling the back of my memory, but it's certainly not a common um, occurrence. And I think there's an interesting opportunity for, for different types of interrelationships between lyrics and gameplay, either very direct and literal or more general, or in the way, you know, Alex, you were suggesting in a way that gives important information to the attentive listener. There's actually a game that comes to mind right now. Um, it's a PlayStation 1 game called Rhapsody, I thought, a musical adventure. I thought you were going to say, um, um, and basically, was it Parappa par- par- uh, <laughs> par- the Rapper? Yeah. Well, yeah. there is Parappa <laughs> the Rapper too. But I'm like, uh, I mean, let's see. I mean, rhythm games are kind of interesting. Yeah. Parappa the Rapper and Unjammer Lammy, where there is this connection between, um, you know, the visual um, and the narrative and the, the lyrics that are in the songs that you are ostensibly performing. But I think that's a little bit different than if the music was actually connecting to what the player does. Because, all right, um, you know, the the player is not punching and kicking. The player is pressing buttons, but the characters are punching and kicking. And then on the other hand, like when you're talking about scrap, it's like, well, okay, this is what the player is involved with, not just what characters in the game are doing. Mm. So, I mean, it's kind of a subtle difference. Uh, but yeah, Parappa is uh, definitely a good example. The thing that came to mind, because I'm a dork when it comes to Japanese role-playing <laughs> games, is this thing called Rhapsody, mm. which was uh, a tactical role-playing game that uh, had a musical theater-type soundtrack. Mm. And so th- there were lyrics, and th- and it would talk about what were the situations that the players were in or what the characters were actually doing at any time. And it was really quite ambitious. It was very interesting to to play. I think I might have a copy of it still because, yes, I am a Japanese role-playing game dork. <laughs> I think also um, uh, Supergiant's Transistor, that the, I think one of the protagonists uh, is, a, is a singer, like a vocalist. So I'd imagine I think um, uh, Darren Korb's score for Transistor probably has vocal parts in it as well. I've not actually played Transistor, but... Uh, that might be another mm. candidate for a you know a great game to have a look at if you're interested in um, vocal parts in game music score. Yeah, and just the idea of audio providing a commentary on what's going on in the game it, it goes all the way back to Bastion, their first game yeah. Before, yeah. before Transistor. Of course, yeah, but yeah, they've made some really cool games. I feel like 
uh, Hades has sort of overshadowed everything else in their catalog. It hit so big last year. Mm. Uh, but their previous games, Bastion, Transistor, and Pyre, also really cool. Also, all with this uh, progression of ambition, uh, really highlighting the evolution of the whole development team there. It's yeah. very cool. Right on. Well, as we approach the the end of our eponymous hour in the show's title, uh, I thought I'd ask if there's anything else y'all wanted to say with respect to uh, the Space Folk album and perhaps what we can expect in Volume 2. Volume 2 is uh, a little bit more eclectic, if that's even possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to feel a bit more like a B-side, uh, which is very exciting. And I think that's, that's a nice thing about having um, split up all of our songs into these two albums. Wow, see... Right at the beginning, I said there was no artistic or strategic uh, intention by splitting it up, and I've, I basically contradicted that twice. Uh, so anyway, yes, uh, Volume 2 is going to be coming up soon, very soon. And um, uh, yeah, it's got a, a whole bunch of uh, uh, slightly more eclectic songs. The, the more accessible kind of um, easy songs came to Volume 1, and Volume 2 is going to be... Uh, uh, also an interesting ride. So if you haven't played the game uh, or you have played the game and you're interested in hearing that, please keep your eye on um, the Moon Mode Twitter, which is uh, where Moon Mode Games, also Linktree Moon Mode Games, has all of our essential links that you need for the game. So that's the place to to watch. And I assume if people want to hear the soundtrack, they can go to the usual suspects in terms of streaming audio and find it there. Yep, it's on Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Apple Music, Spotify, and all the rest. Uh, and yeah, as I said, the link tree uh, has a convenient drop down for the the soundtrack, which gives you links to all of those streaming platforms and also Bandcamp and SoundCloud too. So uh, it's all accessible there. Excellent, uh, Vince. Anything else you wanted to add to the uh, the discussion? Let's see. Oh, uh, probably an interesting thing that maybe our listeners would care about is that there is a difference between hardware and software. So while I was working on the tracks, I thought I'm going to use some 80s and 90s gear. And some of it included samples from Emu Romplers. Mm. Um, so the whole Emu emulator series of the 80s, which eventually became the Romplers of the 90s. I have those things in various formats. For example, in contact format from Digital Sound Factory, which is one of those... Uh, other sample providers are pretty cool. It does not compare to hardware. Mm. It's like uh, you put that up, that contact instrument, you put that up right next to an Emu Proteus 1 or an Emu Proteus 2000, the Proteus kicks its ass. Mm. It just sounds better. Mm. Um, and I think it's, I think it largely has to do with the quality of the hardware filters that it's actually playing through versus even that contact instrument that has dumps of the digital sample data and is trying to emulate everything properly, the contact instrument still doesn't sound quite as good. Mm. But uh, man, I'm glad that I have that hardware on hand, and I think it helped. Absolutely agreed. I actually um, uh, used uh, a JV-1080 uh, and a Roland uh, D110 and a TX-81Z. Uh, I think also got my other, these are all my hardware synths, basically, uh, MKS-50 as well, the Alpha, Ju Alpha Juno uh, rack mount. 
So they also they feature very prominently on on the the songs that we did for this. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It it's not even a case of, you know, some kind of subtle mojo. It's it's clearly quite different and that's very surprising when you consider that these are just basically, you know, digital romplers. Um, yeah, they're not doing anything fancy in terms of synthesis, but it it really does sound noticeably different to, you know, like Roland Cloud, for example. You can get all of the JV1080 sounds on there, but somehow through an actual JV1080, it, it's quite noticeably different. And uh, yeah, I also enjoyed that in this project. Yeah, twenty to thirty year old gear there. It's kind of crazy. I guess it's uh, time to finish up with a little bit of conspicuous consumption, if I can even say that. So we should, we should uh, start with you, Mike, seeing as you've, uh, you've been doing a lot of the asking and not much of the answering. <laughs> so uh, what have you been conspicuously consuming this past two weeks? I am grateful to have been alive during the run of the TV show, The Expanse, because I think it's phenomenal and probably the best sci-fi that I've ever seen. Uh, as is my want, I often find myself paying attention to the score, particularly when I'm listening on uh, AirPods and get a better um, audio picture. And I think it's a very interesting way to take essentially ambient and only occasional melodic um, accompaniment and yet constantly feel like you're following the ebb and flow of the uh, the, the drama. So um, it's it's, I don't know how listenable it would be on an album out of context unless you're like us and have no problem listening to underscore out of context. But the combination of the show, which is just amazing, and the score is a, a real emotional wallop. So highly recommended for any sci-fi nerds in our audience, and I suspect there may be a few. Mm, interesting. Mm. How about you, Vince? I've heard so much about that show, but let's see. TV, what have I been watching? Uh, not much. Games, what have I been checking out? Honestly, uh, I played through Unpacking again. Um, I think I mentioned this a bit, uh, I think last month. But Unpacking is a really interesting indie game, and there is some very cool stuff happening with storytelling and storytelling through mechanics, as well as sound effects. Um, not that the sounds are really doing anything amazing or like super ambitious, but the scale of it is, um, is just, uh, incredible to behold just how many different sound effects for all the Foley are actually done for this game. You know, you can take any random object and put it on any other surface and it will sound like that object on that surface specifically because they recorded that object on that surface, <laughs> a pencil case on a comforter, a computer on a hardwood floor, um, a bottle of Listerine on a kitchen counter, <laughs> and it will sound different. And it really is amazing just that scale adding to the immersion in what is otherwise a very retro-looking and abstract game. You know, if if you had told me this earlier, I would have thought, oh, isn't there kind of like a disconnect there? If it has that sort of isometric sort of 16-bit 90s era presentation, shouldn't the sound be more fitting in with that era? But no, it's very realistic sounding. Mm. And I think it, it was a great decision. It just sounds so cool. And the sounds connected to the mechanics and the mechanics being the thing that really connects you to the story – is what really immerses me in the game. Mm. So 
Uh, again, I think I might have hinted at this before, but I think when I first mentioned it on the show, I wasn't quite finished with the game. But now, let me just say, hats off to the the sound people behind unpacking. Which brings us to you, Alex. What's uh, what's been on your plate lately? Uh, well, I've um, um, discovered a new band. Uh, they are called Mute Meth, uh, and uh, I'm a little bit obsessed right now. <laughs> My album of the week on constant rotation has been Mute Meth's uh, 2015 album called Vitals, and I'll describe it as sort of like uh, an electro-pop tinged take on various UK genres, but seen through a distinctly American lens. How's that? <laughs> there's an American band, and a lot of the songs, the, 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 there's a, a distinct uh, kind of UK flavor to the music, uh, and they're, they're taking on a lot of um, sort of uh, quintessentially UK genres of music. But it's done with a with a, a distinctive and quite obvious uh, American feel to it, which I think is really really fascinating. So, yeah, hmm. Mute Math uh, Vitals is the name of the album that I've been listening to from 2015, and it's my album of the week and highly recommended. So, there you are. Right on. Sounds it's always cool. Always interesting to think of what a non-American national thinks of as an American sound. That's you know everyone has even though we have a predominantly shared culture among English speaking nations there we all have different perceptions of each other and it's it's interesting to try to put yourself mentally outside of your own cultural context. Yeah, there's there's probably a, a whole episode about that we could talk about, uh, but uh, not today, not right now, maybe in the future. For now, I guess that was an episode. This was episode 219 of the game Audio Hour. If you'd like, you can check us out on the web because that's where you're listening to us right now. We are at gameaudiohour.com and you can check out our link tree which lists to where we are on places like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. You can also check out our Twitter at Game Audio Hour. There, we will sometimes comment on cool things that are happening out there on the web. Uh, contrary to popular belief, there are, in fact, some positive things that are happening on Twitterverse. Um, so we try to highlight that stuff, especially things related to game audio. That is also where we will post when the next episode drops. And until that time comes, bye. Bye.